Welcome to Miriosity, a podcast about Christianity for the merely curious. I'm Trevor Cook, and today I'm joined by co-founder Andrew Bass. He is a dear friend of mine and also quite a celebrated man in the Anglican circle. Uh, He has uh, only recently started, of course, in his line of work, but uh, he's becoming quite experienced very quickly, and I'd say I'm proud of him. So I'll turn it over to you, Andrew, to introduce yourself. Thank you, Trevor. I am Andrew Bass, and Trevor never fails with these wonderful introductions. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I am soon to be, I guess not officially, a postulant for ordination in the Anglican Church in North America. I am a youth minister, which I love. Um, I do a little bit of teaching as well. And I am still in seminary, uh, working towards that, doing a lot of thesis writing right now. So that's, oh, oh man, my fiance is going to be very mad at me for not mentioning this sooner. I'm getting married in eight days. So <laughs> to my beautiful fiance, who I do love, I'm just scatterbrained, but very excited Absolutely. About <laughs> and she is fantastic. Uh, Danielle is, in fact, one of the most favorite people in the world for me i am i'm so excited for you andrew so excited for you both and glad i'll get to see you in person here pretty soon too for all the big events um so with that out of the way though i'd I'd love for you to kind of get us started here last week we uh covered the council of constantinople the first council of constantinople and this week, we'll be discussing the Council of Ephesus. Uh, so I'll hand it over to you, Andrew, to kind of give us the, the context of what the Council of Ephesus is and its uh, significance in Christian history. Sure. Yeah, let me try and give a little 30-second uh, uh, summary. This is a pretty big council. This is uh, what we call the Third Ecumenical Council so at this point, we've already had Nicaea, which was, you know, the big, the big guns, the home run, uh, the deity of Christ proclaimed. We get the Nicene Creed, the summary of faith that is huge for uniting Christians. I mean, really the biggest thing next to scripture itself that we all still prof- profess and proclaim today within orthodoxy. Um, after that, we get the second ecumenical council. We get Constantinople after they were dealing with Jesus and dealt with the Arians. They turned to the Holy Spirit. Uh, last week in our podcast, we went over the very small amount of time that was given to the Holy Spirit in the original creed and the update that was given in Constantinople, um, leaving no question whether or not the Holy Spirit was God and clearly establishing the Trinity, uh, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all fully God, three persons of one trinity sharing the same essence. So that happens, and if you were left on a, uh, on a ledge with where the Arians went, they're still around. Um, at this time, some time had gone by, we're getting into the 400s now, uh, so we're about 40 years later, um, Rome has shifted and the West is not the big kahuna that it used to be. The East is really a big deal. Um, and Constantinople is the center of Rome and really the center of the church. So now that everyone's had enough time to get bored over the Trinity and they're not really allowed to challenge that without being called a heretic, some people start questioning Jesus again and say, okay, 
uh, well, Jesus is God. Uh, but what does that mean? Jesus is fully man and fully God. And there wasn't, there weren't too many people questioning this anymore. Remember, it was the Arians that denied the fully God part in some sense. Well, now the debate was how do these two things work together? And there was a guy named Nestorius, who was the Bishop of Constantinople, so a pretty big deal. You may have heard his name before. And he argued, well, Jesus is fully man and fully God, but in a, uh, in a way that makes it a little bit more difficult to understand. Uh, and he questioned whether Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, truly gave birth to God. Because at this time, a term that had been thrown around and used a lot was Theotokos, which meant God-bearer. And Nestorius challenged this and said, I'm not saying Jesus isn't God, but I am saying that Mary didn't give birth to God. This caused a lot of problems. I'm going to stop now uh, just to make sure I'm not <laughs> jumping ahead, Trevor, and, and you tell me what it was. I mean, it, it, it is a great overview, but I do think that we should we should expand on a lot of this because you know you, you cover a lot of ground uh, yeah. <laughs> and just to, to start out I mean the the move to the east is huge uh, yes. this is a very important time in Roman history uh, we talked about uh, last time with the Council of Constantinople all of the bishops present were from churches in the east they were not in fact uh, you know representing the west as much anymore uh, as most stuff was happening in the east it was the the place to be lots of commerce lots of uh learning and education um and uh just kind of to establish a little bit more of an understanding of that do you want to expand on kind of the idea of like diocese and uh kind of like eastern uh christianity at this point yeah I think that's a pretty good idea, actually. So what we're going to see a lot in this council is are these geographical claims and these geographical claims of succession for churches. And you'll see some of these churches that Paul wrote to, right, in some of these churches that we read about in the first century, um, Antioch and Rome and Jerusalem and all of these places – they are all still rolling along, right? Um, even outside of maybe the center of the Roman Empire, even as it's moving from east to west, we've still got Africa and we've still got Asia and all these places. And they're all still holding on to their identity, uh, most of them as a church established by one of the 12 apostles. And so as we get to the time in this council, with a little bit of shifting in Rome going around, there's a bit of an identity issue. I don't know that I'd say identity crisis, um, but an issue of a lot of these churches coming in and really feeling that it's important that they maintain their uh, autocephaly, maybe, is a big word to be used there, which just basically means their independence because they are a legitimate church in their own eyes. Um, and then there's some people challenging that. And that uh, is definitely going to contribute to some of the problems at this council, the Council of Ephesus, is just a lot of churches coming in, uh, thinking themselves to be pretty significant and important, and that will just impact how they uh, behave and think at the council. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and cut you off here for some 
some questions that I, I, th- I think a lot of our listeners who might not have as much experience within the church, uh, kind of like their idea of like what uh, church gathering is at this time might not be clear based on the discussion we're going to have today. Because previously we had these bishops, our church leaders, who were uh, confusing kind of what, what, what was the teaching of a certain area based on just where they were. Uh, a lot of them were established. Some of them traveled a lot, so it was harder to track down where the heresy was going. Um, and then in today's council that we're discussing, there's very established hierarchy based on these important uh, kind of patriarchies that are passed down from the apostles. And so in, in relation to that, like diocese, uh, which basically means managed house, is kind of the uh, the source of this foundation within an area. So if I was, you know, I could be a bishop in the area of Rome. Uh, so outside of the actual city, uh, I could be teaching, preaching, uh, doing my own thing. But if there was ever a question or a problem, I would go to the Bishop of Rome to help me resolve that issue. If people had issues with what I was teaching, they would probably go to the Bishop of Rome. Not every person who has a problem at this point is going to call an ecumenical council to resolve it. Um, generally, there is a structure in place to kind of solve those issues within the locality of the church. Uh, so within that like frame set, I've, I've heard this before and Andrew, you'll have to correct me because I, I don't think it has any, any etymological like relevance at all, but I've heard the seas of diocese kind of helps you imagine an idea of that. These are seas for the fishers of men. So the bishops mm. kind of have their own little territory where they're responsible for being the fisher of men within that area. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard that before, but I, yeah. it's got to be from years ago now. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not heard that, but you're right. And again, at, per usual, I, I brushed completely over your question on diocese. So uh, good on you for explaining that. Yeah, we're, we're dealing with geographical areas and churches. And this is widely, I would argue, and a lot of historians would, that this is how the church viewed itself. I don't want to keep comparing it to the state's um <laughs> of the united states but in, in in a sense that might give us a better understanding of how to think of it uh they all believed that they were a part of one church uh that's why they use terms like heresy and orthodoxy heresy is against the teaching of the church orthodoxy is the right teaching of the church but in the same way you're right they were confi- confined to these geographical areas where for the most part they could really handle business on their own if there was a bad teaching like you brought up coming up, they would bring it to their bishop. Um, if there was a priest doing something, um, some other priests would try and get involved. And yeah, again, it would float up to that hierarchy of bishops. So very rooted at this time for sure is the uh, leadership of priest and then bishop above him. And they're all, again, geographically founded. So at least that's the way that they viewed it now. So yeah, you're right. They wouldn't be crossing over those lines. Um, they wouldn't really have jurisdiction to do that. Yeah. 
No, especially even at this point, there the Pope's authority uh, too within the Roman Catholic Church has not been established. So the Bishop of Rome has some marginal authority over the others, but that is clearly not at the level at which we would imagine um, the Pope to have at this point. Uh, and so the, you know, uh, I, I'll go ahead and get get into like the key players here that we're talking about today as as we've done a lot of discussing about the geography um these are the important bishops uh based on the locations that they're kind of uh that they're responsible for uh Mm -hmm. and first of all uh we have constantinople uh coming in as a very unusual player in this game like you mentioned earlier it's not an apostolically like uh, they they can't trace back their origin to an apostle who uh, preached there or established a church within that area, but it is the seat of Emperor Theodosius II at this time. So we have the seat of power of Constantinople, uh, which uh, houses, of course, Nestorius, who is the heretic of the week, uh, and yeah. he previously was just a monk uh, in Antioch uh, before becoming kind of elevated that position, which, I mean, being being someone who is actively in an environment debating theology with other people who are well-trained and educated in theology, uh, and then moving from that position into being the advisor to the emperor of the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah. Like... That's that's a huge uh, shift right there, but that's our our first big player. I, I, if there's anything else you want to add about Nestorius and his history before we talk about the others, um, I just hand that over to you. Yeah, sure. So, and I do want to just make one note: um, the Church of Constantinople would trace their lineage back to Andrew the Apostle, I believe. I'm not super brushed up on my Orthodox history. But I, I think that's the claim that they would make. Um, but yeah, that being said, that we're dealing with a geographical shift that that was a lot, politics had a lot to do with um, the view of authority and what was going on here, for sure. Um, but yeah, Nestorius was a monk. Uh, he became the bishop of Constantinople, a really important position. And when questions started getting asked about Jesus, um, that's when he started giving answers, and it caused a bit of controversy. <laughs> yeah, and then then we have everyone else getting involved, <laughs> yeah. which is which is of course this idea that you know you live a long distance away from the emperor, and you hold a position of great power within the church, but you don't have the emperor's ear quite like Nestorius does now, and so when the sound when you start hearing you know the alarms go off and the this these teachings that are contrary to uh what you have been telling your own subjects for so long you know that that's definitely going to be what draws people's attention and so from the other very important uh diocese of rome and antioch in uh what is now syria uh, alexandria of egypt uh, we we start seeing some action and involvement. Uh, Rome at that time has Pope uh, Celestine, uh, and Antioch is headed by John at that point. Um, 
And then Alexandria has Cyril, of course, who is possibly the most outspoken opponent of Nestorius throughout the story. But each of those cities, of course, are huge, uh, very important uh, centers for cultural uh, education, commerce, uh, and of course, theology. It's, it's essentially like, I mean, I live in Washington, D.C., anyone who wants to study politics and get involved in policy making typically in you know the united states they will try to move here at some point either for education or to participate in work in this area these are the cities that draw in anyone who wants to do theology anyone who wants to be part of the church uh in the same way these are kind of like the powerhouses for that uh, and yeah. then we have kind of, yeah, uh, some unusual ones, too, that are, are less big for the Roman Empire, but still big for Christianity, such as Jerusalem, which at that point, I believe it was recently destroyed. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you can add more uh, context to that, uh, but uh, I, Juvenal was the bishop of Jerusalem at that point and mm-hmm. is also a major player within this uh this council yeah totally um (laughs) i um yeah that that's kind of what was going on these are big players and yeah and again constantinople uh was the center of this so it was probably the worst place for nestorius to be if he was going to say something that was going to anger the church because you're right it was a place of huge influence yeah so my next question to you then uh is why would theodosius ii call the council assuming that he is in this position to work with nestorius one-on-one why does the emperor in this case put the council together yeah well it's kind of out of necessity so let's resume um what we were talking about at the beginning here um nestorius is teaching these things about jesus uh, he says, we, we cannot use the term God-bearer, Theotokos, for Jesus because Mary did not give birth to God. And I, I feel like every time anyone tries to explain Nestorianism, they don't do it correctly, and I'm probably going to butcher it too. So if there are any Nestorians around here, sorry, Assyrian Christians, I'm probably going to get this wrong. But he essentially argued, uh, like we we're saying, yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man, but God doesn't change, right? But that's that's another um, Orthodox Christian teaching is that God is immutable, which means he doesn't change. And so for him, God can't be born. God can't grow. Like God can't experience this change that a human being experiences. And so for that reason, yes, Mary gave birth to Christ. Mary gave birth to Jesus, but she did not give birth to the word because that would require the word to be mutable. Um, So that was his big distinction. And so what happened was Cyril, he took this personally, and he he was very disturbed by this. And there was an exchange of letters between Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius. Uh, Cyril wrote a letter, and then Nestorius wrote back, and then Cyril wrote a second letter to Nestorius, which is important. Because this is where Cyril lays out the theology of Christ's two natures that would be accepted and canonized by this council. And for Cyril, 
He argues that Christ has two distinct natures, fully God and fully man, and that Mary, because these things cannot be separated from each other, Mary gave birth to, well, I don't want to say gave birth to God, but in a sense, she totally did, and that and that's what the Theotokos was claiming. And he actually would reference back to the Nicene Creed for this and say that this is the faith that is taught in the Nicene Creed. It can't be interpreted any other way. And so for him, he was just protecting the same faith that had been proclaimed uh, since the resurrection of Christ. Right, which I just to expand on this a little bit, because the importance of this issue can sometimes be lost when your idea of God is more of a, a deistic one, where he he set the world into motion and doesn't get involved very much. Um, but like, and things happen, and then of course, you know, if that God comes incarnate, it seems like a normal thing that the God could be born as a as a child. Um, as much as that's that sentence sounds absolutely crazy. But <laughs> the mm-hmm. the idea of uh, like the idea of the Jewish God and of the Christian God at this point is not one where God is hands off. It is a constant involvement of God in our existence that necessitates Nestorius's uh, viewpoint on this issue. That essentially. If you were to tell me that the God who causes the manger and the woman who who bears Jesus to exist and is constantly involved, whose hand is on the very moment and situation of his destined birth, is going to also be born by a human woman who, while being special and good and Nestorius was not in any way anti-Marian like practices, but that there there is an issue there that he says doesn't compute, and that Jesus yeah. could still be both natures, but Mary didn't have to be the mother of God. Yeah, but and oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. oh yeah. <laughs> no, no buts. Back to you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and so um, Cyril argued that um, yeah, I'm reading from his third letter now, but he reads the creed and he says, this means that God, Jesus, he took flesh from the Holy Virgin and made it his own, undergoing a birth like ours from her womb and coming forth a man from a woman. He did not cast aside what he was, which was God, but although he assumed flesh and blood, he remained what he was, God in nature and in truth. And so this is... Cyril's argument. This is what he's claiming is the Orthodox teaching. Nestorius does not like this. They exchange a few letters. After the second letter, um, Nestorius responds, and Cyril now um, goes and tattles on him. He he goes to Pope Celestine and uh, (laughs) tells him what's going on, and he comes up with these 12 anathemas, Cyril does, And the Pope kind of co-signs it, and he holds a little synod in, I think, 430 AD, in which he excommunicates Nestorius. Okay, so this is all still before the council. Um, This is is Rome trying to make, trying to resolve this issue with the current standard of marginal authority that Rome has, right? 
Yes, yeah. So c- clearly we'll see here, and this is where Roman Catholics probably get pretty excited. The, the Pope seems to ha- think that he has the authority to do this. Um, <laughs> well, and I don't, I don't mean that as an insult in any way, because um, it, it's, it's a good argument uh, from their standpoint at least. But uh, so he does this, and that's not accepted uh, by the church worldwide. But clearly there's a problem here. Theodosius II, who was actually the grandson of Theodosius I, who called the Second Council in Constantinople, <laughs> um, he gets word of this, and he kind of he knows that this is going on already, obviously, and he said, okay, like, fine, enough's enough, we're going to have a council and decide this once and for all. And with that being said, the Third Ecumenical Council was uh, initiated. So before we get into the council itself, do you want to explain kind of the the uh, opposite term to Theotokos, um, Christotokos? Yeah, sure. Um, I I don't I haven't I try not to dive too deep into that uh, because, like I said, I don't want to explain I don't want to misexplain Nestorius's view. But I'll just kind of reiterate, uh, yeah, Nestorius would claim that Mary was the Christ-bearer for the reasons that we went over earlier, because God can't change. And yes, Jesus has those two natures, um, but God, the nature of God could not go through something like being born and going through the experience of an ignorant baby and like all of that sort of thing. And that's probably as far as I want to go with Christotokos. But that's why it was so important to Nestorius, because for him, that fringed upon uh, the immutability of God. And so for him, Theotokos uh, just entered into a different heresy. Right. So so then it, it is conclusive that this debate is not about the elevation of Mary um or like any sort of marian issue but it is christological still it's about christ's nature instead um so knowing yes. knowing that um who is on nestorius's side or does he have a second in this battle or is he on his own here um nestorius has a lot of people on his side uh he has a lot of constantinople on his side uh, he's got a lot of the Assyrian Christians on his side um, who are, as we'll learn at the end of this council, very ardent uh, and committed to his teaching. Um, and he's got John of Antioch on his side. I don't know if I would formally call John of Antioch an historian, um, but he was sympathetic to the teaching. And he did go on to defend Nestorius at the Council of Ephesus. Okay. So so two of the major four and I'm not going to include Jerusalem just because Jerusalem's involvement is, is not, not as big at this point, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, two of the four, that, that's a pretty well-divided um, situation. So what uh, happens when everyone arrives? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this, this council is summoned. Uh, he calls in everybody. And they all start making their journey down there. Um, Cyril of Alexandria gets there. Now, Nestorius does not come to the council. He is invited three times, but here, I'll, I'll explain this first, and then we'll see why he didn't come. So, 
Cyril gets to the council. He brings a slew of bishops with him. He's got 50 bishops, um, and... That's not regulation see. chess. No, <laughs> no, it is not. He's he, he brings 50 bishops with him who are seething and very angry about this. I think you brought up Memnon, the bishop of Ephesus. Uh, he brought 62, 50 from Ephesus, uh, which I guess they didn't have to travel far, and uh, 12 bishops from Asia. Um, some more bi- And there were more bishops there just from around the global church. And this is who event- ultimately came early. And so there are 150 bishops, and then Nestorius sends 16. So um, out of the 162 bishops who get there early, only 16 of them are in support of Nestorius. So John of Antioch, he's not there yet. He claims that uh, the weather's holding him up and that it's just going to be a little while longer. So he, he's kind of like the friend that tells you that uh, he's five minutes out when he's still sitting on his couch eating Cheetos and hasn't left the house yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what uh, John of Antioch is doing. Um, he claims that he was late uh, to know uh, a decision of his own. He couldn't control it. Um, Cyril, who is pretty angry about all of this, claims that he's intentionally being late because he is Nestorius's friend and he doesn't want this council to happen. So he's trying to push it into a stalemate. And so Cyril says, I think it was June 20th, he said, uh, the council is starting tomorrow. And the emperor and, uh, well, the bishops there protested and said, uh, no, it's not. Well, lo and behold, uh, tomorrow came and Cyril <laughs> started the council. <laughs> and it, it worked. Um, I think, I don't want to get too much into this because I don't know this for a fact, but I think he had a letter uh, from Theodosius that he kind of murkied and fooled around to make it seem like the the council had to start immediately. And so that's what happened. Mm. So uh, the the- session- Theodosius was not there for this council. The emperor no. was not present. Okay. Yeah, but... Um, at least I'm pretty confident he wasn't. I'm sure if he was, we'll get lots of comments that I was wrong. And that's okay. <laughs> I've, been, I've been wrong before. But uh, so the council starts and um, it lasts one day, I believe. And that's the end of it. Um, they affirm um, Cyril's second letter. Uh, I believe they affirm the 12 anathemas against Nestorius and it's just kind of like up and down. Uh, that's that. And and this ties into why Nestorius didn't want to come. Uh, he essentially said, why would I come to a trial where my accuser is also my judge? And uh, that's what <laughs> ended up happening. Yeah, that's what ended up happening. So after this, day one, sorry, go ahead. This does just like scream like, like politics, right? Like this is like yeah. simultaneously, both groups are trying to, you know, you know, uh, change the council to effectively help help their side in a way, but it it's the equivalent of like a filibuster, a, a government shutdown. You know, they're they're at a, a crossroads where where no one's willing to actually <coughs> talk and, and work things out. Um, yeah, and I can't imagine that's helpful for the unity of the church. Yeah. Oh, definitely not. And as we'll see, uh, it's really causes a lot of fractures. So that happens. I think five days later, John gets there, John of Antioch, with his 43 bishops, finds out about this and says, 
I'll hold the council myself. So <laughs> according to Leo Donald, who um, I'm reading a lot just prepping for these uh, these episodes, he does a great book on the councils. He, um, John of Antioch gets there. He says, okay, uh, he holds the council in his hotel room <laughs> and uh, they excommunicate Cyril. <laughs> um, um, you you can't fire me because I fired you. <laughs> yeah, um, and that that actually yeah that is prophetic because that's kind of what happens for the next six hundred years leading into the Great Schism after this. But he holds his own council, uh, does the same thing basically that uh, Cyril did, just a little bit less official, a um, lot of infighting, and Theodosius. Again, woken from his slumber, very angry, says, okay, <laughs> let's try this again. <laughs> I can just imagine him doing this, though, and, like, like, you know, sending all the bishops, have the ecumenical council, and then come back and find out that there were, in fact, two councils and uh, a lot less bishops present than he expected either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. And so there ended up being seven meetings in total, seven sessions in the council. And as we know today, uh, Cyril's side won, and Nestorius was ultimately uh, condemned, and Nestorianism itself was condemned. Okay. And and so with it condemned, um, are we going to have any uh, banishments to an island as previously seen? Or oh. is there <laughs> a better way of resolving this? Because I, I think I know, I think I know at least one of these condemned bishops gets another chance at being a monk. But was that Nestorius or John? <laughs> yeah. So it was Nestorius, I believe. Uh, funny enough, during the council, both Cyril and Nestorius were deposed by Theodosius, um, and they were kind of oh, put wow. on. Yeah, they were kind of put on timeout. <laughs> um, as this got figured out. And then after the council happened and Cyril's side won, uh, Nestorius asked to return to the monastery in which he came, and I believe he was granted that request. Um, but his anathemas were ultimately upheld. Okay. Amazing. Yeah, that, that is definitely uh, kind of a twist, I feel like. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I definitely think that shows that uh, Theodosius did not approve of the initial uh, way that the councils were held and how they proceeded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's so interesting, though, because so he basically kind of affirmed what both initial councils declared first by <laughs> excommunicating both of them, and then mm-hmm. um, they were able to work out kind of a solution going forward uh, that left most people happy question mark <laughs> um no they, they a lot a lot of a lot of people were not happy with this decision so here here are the three main things that came out of the council of ephesus um mm-hmm. let's work up to the big one one pelagianism which was kind of popular around that time um was denied um so that was officially Wait, rejected. what's Pelagianism? Yeah, so it basically Pelagianism is a rejection of original sin. 
and uh, it teaches that humans can achieve perfection. And a lot of Pelagians argued that that's really what happened with Jesus, that he was a human who achieved perfection. And that's why he's like the archetypal example for all of us. So that was rejected. The Nicene Creed was reaffirmed, and it was reaffirmed with um, Cyril's second letter to Nestorius as the proper interpretation of it. Okay. So then the so now we don't just have the Nicene Creed, but we have the Nicene Creed plus Cyril's spark notes to kind of give us yes. a better explanation <laughs> of the, the Jesus nature. Um, yes. So we Christological have, yeah. crystallization. Uh, we're having an actual refined view of uh, what is now the hypostatic union, right? Yes, exactly. And and that's kind of what we've seen happening with these three councils as we've gone through them, right? Someone starts to question the divinity of Christ, that's established. Okay, that's done. Someone starts questioning the divinity of the Holy Spirit, okay, that's established. Um, and now we get up, well, if Jesus is fully man and fully God, what does that mean? And they hold this council and they say, this is what it means. And this is the way to interpret the Nicene Creed. Nice. Yeah, and, and again, for our listeners, hypostatic union just means that uh, Christ is both true God and true man, often referred to mathematically as 100% man, 100% God. Um, yes. But the, the idea is beyond mathematics, clearly, and, and more about an attribute or like form, uh, metaphysical form uh, that we're trying to establish as being Christ's presence, both as God and as truly an incarnate man, the son of man, uh, which is very important because it is the completion and fulfillment of uh, God's covenant with uh, the Israelites. So this is a very important aspect of Christianity and is widely uh, respected today by Christians. I don't believe that there's any uh, major denominations that would deny the hypostatic union today, but you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> yeah, well, at least not any that are widespread and accepted. Now, there was, uh, my apologies if I already mentioned this, but people that were, uh, talking of people that were angry, um, the Assyrians, the Assyrian church was not happy with this decision. Um, and the store, so they actually following this council, they rejected it and, uh, they are still independent. Um, today they are a church that still exists, um, still has their succession of bishops, uh, and they're known as the Assyrian church of the East. And they only accept the first two ecumenical councils. They reject Ephesus and they venerate, um, Nestorius as a saint. They recognize him as a saint of the oh, church. Wow. No, so that's that's our first big bad breakup. Uh, first one off the bus at the stop is is Assyria. I mean that that is not something that you would expect at this point, considering uh, how much just a general agreement there's been in the last two councils. It's always been shocking how much uh, unity they were able to maintain throughout this. And a lot of uh, I know a lot of people like to refer to the councils as being unanimously decided um but this is clearly kind kind of a, a sad a sad point in in history for that to occur and i'm i only i only say this because i know it's a joke hopefully it doesn't happen again 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this, um, so just to get to the end of all that this council, uh, did immediately. Yeah. It, the Assyrian church ultimately rejected it. Uh, and they do to this day, uh, they uphold the Nestorian view, um, and Nestorianism in and of itself became kind of a caricature. Uh, every, the, the adage kind of goes that Nestor, Nestorius himself was not a Nestorian. So there, there was, talking about politics, there was a lot of uh, politics at play there. And I'm not trying to undermine uh, the importance of this council, because I do affirm the Council of Ephesus. I, I affirm Cyril's interpretation uh, of Christ's two natures, and I think that that's an important distinction. Uh, but a lot of times Nestorius gets labeled for um, denying the divinity of Christ or having some sort of view that he really didn't hold. And so I think it's important, at least for his sake, to defend the heretic uh, that he did <laughs> affirm that Christ was fully God and fully man. But um, yeah, that was rejected. And another um, seed that was planted for future division uh, was kind of the view of the Bishop of Rome and the view of different jurisdictions in the church. Really? Okay. So I, I know that we've talked about the major players this time and the role of Rome and it's kind of slight authority over the other uh, archbishops. And I'm going to say archbishops, but note that archbishops did not exist at this time. So that's just the term we're applying to them. Uh, retrospectively but you know the these guys are considered um, each in their own right to kind of have power over their areas and that slight amount of power that Rome has is not really evident yet uh, as the papal authority that we're familiar with today uh, with Roman Catholic teaching so yeah. what, what, how is this coming into play? Because it seems like still like the emperor is the one making the moves um, yeah. or decisions. Well, definitely. This is, it's either this or Chalcedon. I don't remember which one uh, would be the last council uh, called by the emperor instead of by the pope. And so it really depends on who you ask. So I, I want to read two quotes here, uh, especially just to give some credence to any Roman Catholic listeners that we might have. Um, cause they would say that the, um, authority of the Pope is clear as day in this council. And they would, they would immediately point to the anathemas and excommunication handed in 430 by Pope Celestine. But, um, so Celestine, who wasn't there, he sent, uh, a legate, legate, I never know how to pronounce that word, but, uh, <laughs> he sent a, a priest, uh, from, from Rome to represent the Pope. And he had this quote. That sounds very papal supporting. There is no doubt, and in fact it has been known in all ages, that the holy and most blessed Peter, and head of the apostles, pillar of faith, and foundation of the Catholic Church, received the keys of the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of the human race, and that to him was given the power of loosing and binding sins, who down even to today forever both lives and judges in his successors. The holy and most blessed Pope Celestine, according to due order, is his successor and holds his place, and us he sent to supply his place in the Holy Synod, which the most humane and Christian emperors have commanded to assemble, bearing in mind and continually watching over the Catholic faith. 
For they have kept and are keeping intact the apostolic doctrine handed down to them from their most pious and humane grandfathers and fathers of holy memory down to the present time. So, in, in Rome, there does seem to be this idea that it matters, um, that that successor of Peter, that position matters and has some sort of impact uh, over the church. Now, the other side of that coin, now I gave, I gave Rome their fair share, now I'll defend our Orthodox uh, brothers and sisters. <laughs> um, th- there was a canon in the Council of Ephesus. So right now we've talked about dealing with heresies, but the eighth canon, the final can- canon of the Council of Ephesus, dealed with bishops uh, kind of overreaching their jurisdictions. And the ultimate decision, uh, plainly, was that no bishop has authority over another province. And that if there is a bishop uh, acting in authority over another province, then he immediately needs to give it up and return it to its rightful uh, office holder. Wow, okay. So is that contrary then to the kind of statement made by Celestine? Um, yeah, by Philip. Um, well, again, it, it depends on who you ask. That's what makes doing <laughs> history, that's what makes doing history so tough. Um, cause I, I think if I could step in the shoes of a Roman Catholic, they'd say, yeah, that's fine. Um, but the Bishop of Rome has jurisdiction over all provinces. And so he, he doesn't count. <laughs> like he, he's yeah. not part of that. Whereas, uh, the, the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I'm an Anglican, I mean, we would say this. Uh, is that no, um, that, that stands for all bishops. Um, but what it does do, what we can confirm in the historical record, is that there, this is the beginning of a long battle, um, an argument, debate over the authority of the church. That, again, ultimately ends in the Great Schism in 1054, but I mean, there, there are multiple churches who break over similar issues before then. And this is kind of the first direct quote that we see that there might be some confusion here uh, over ecclesiology. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I just going over this, th- this council, a lot has happened. And a lot of the people and positions that are being discussed now are creating truly the pathway forward in terms of Christian history because we're, we're seeing the beginning of those schisms, the first cracks, the, the loss of the Assyrian church um, from the ecumenical councils. And now um, just even looking at the the roles uh, played by by the people who are a part of this council, I mean, the, the, we know that the Bishop of Rome goes on to be the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. We know that the Bishop of Antioch goes on to be the head of the Antiochian church, uh, Antiochian orthodoxy. Uh, we know that the Bishop of Alexandria becomes the Pope of the Coptic Church, and we know mm-hmm. that the Bishop of Constantinople becomes the Ecumenical Patriarch of the Eastern Orthodoxy, which is just the beginning of like um, the, this this split happening, right? That it, it is one church, and it has been one church for so long, and these councils have been kind of the the culmination of that one church. Uh, and that we've been able to follow the history with it. But as we move on from the, uh, the third council, uh, we're going to be getting uh, 
uh, to councils that are accepted by fewer and fewer Christians. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, that talks about like where, where we are within the councils at this point. Um, but where we're going next has a lot to do with kind of how these communities are perceiving these actions. Because we talk about the context historically uh, that you know Rome is sh- is changing; it's shifting to the east, and mm-hmm. people who were once um, involved are easily available to discuss things, or are now struggling with the ability to to reach these these far flung areas of the empire and become a part of the the conversation. Uh, this this is a time when you know Rome is seen as the entire world, the the known world at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're we are moving towards a, a a period of I feel like more confusion and less less communication like this. Uh, so I I hand it back to you to kind of close us out, Andrew. But you know what what does that look like now um, for the future and long term impact of this council? Yeah. Well, um, I I think. It does. It, it has a lot. And I think the biggest thing that comes out of this is there is a vast acceptance of the Theotokos as seeing Mary as the God bearer. And obviously different traditions do what uh, they do with this. And it, it especially as veneration becomes more popular uh, and what that means and, and the development of some other things. But uh, yeah, this is still, again, a widely accepted teaching even among Protestants, even among low church Protestants that don't put any sense of authority in the councils. Uh, they recognize, recognize this as a true teaching, even if they might say this is dangerous and we should be cautious to call Mary the God-bearer because it can lead to idolatry or this or that. Ultimately, uh, nine times out of ten, they'll still affirm it and say, well, yes, this is true. Yes, uh, Cyril's interpretation is accurate. Like that, that represents the biblical teaching of Christ's two natures. Um, But yeah, I think the biggest thing that comes out of that, other than still unity around this, is we're starting to see schism happen, and it's only going to accelerate after this point. All right. Well, with that, I think we're good to to close off this episode. I appreciate you being willing to record uh, just a week out from uh, some very important ceremonies uh, in yeah. your life. <laughs> so quite quite the uh, quite the gathering that's uh, gonna occur next weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Um, oh yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but without further ado, uh, we'll go ahead and end this episode here. And uh, thank you, Andrew, as always. Discussion was great. And I'm looking forward to our next meeting. Thank you, Trevor. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks for listening. To find more resources to satisfy your curiosity, go to Miriosity.com and read more about the topics we discussed today. If you are a Miriosity supporter or have rated the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, we thank you for helping us to produce this show. In this episode, we featured Andrew Bass, who has an article linked in the description. This podcast is produced by Miriosti, music by St. Surya.